Hi everyone, welcome to today's episode of What's a Crime with Cronya and Gemma. Hi. <laughs> You're so enthusiastic. <laughs> so, hello. <laughs> for today's episode, this is actually um, a case that was um, recommended to us. Um, Jonathan uh, actually works with granite uh, podcast studios and he lived in Alaska around the time that this case unfolds so he recommended this was a really good story for us to do and he lived actually in in the town where this happened exactly and followed this case and stuff so we are very excited to um for this episode it's really really interesting and yeah let's get started so Jessica Baggin was a regular 17-year-old girl. She lived with her parents, George and Vicky, and her three sisters in Sitka, Alaska, where she was born and raised. So I googled Sitka in Alaska, and it's like a city, borough. It's, it's kind of like a big island type thing, so it's only accessible via boat or plane. And at the time, it was home to a private college, Sheldon Jackson College, which has since closed as of 2007. So Jessica loved going on fishing trips with her family, photography and cooking. And I think she was going down the the chef route as a career because she loved it so much. She was described as an independent and free spirit. On May the 4th, 1996, she was celebrating her 17th birthday. So she decided to go to her older sister Amanda's house to have a little celebration with some of her friends. Her sister lived on Sawmill Creek Road. First of all, Sawmill Creek Road. Yeah, that already is like, what? Doesn't that sound creepy? Creepy, yeah. So that was about a mile from where Jessica lived, which was on Barlow Street. So at approximately 1.30 a.m., she left her sister's house to walk home. So it was much later than her normal curfew, but like it was her birthday and her parents were like, it's fine, like let them stay out. Yeah, I mean, like she's 17, exactly. 1.30 is not that late. And you're so cool. No, but I mean, it actually <laughs> isn't. Like when you think about it, half yeah. one in the morning is not that late, especially yeah. when you're 17. And also like to put it in context, the, uh, the route you know, was relatively busy from Samuel Creek Road to Barlow Street. So from her sister's house to her parents' house? Yes. Where she lived was... It it was, you know, quite a busy street. It was the route that students walked to get across the college campus. It was also only a mile, so it's a relatively short distance. When I think of Alaska, I think of it being freezing cold. You know, you just think of snow and stuff, but it was May time, like it wasn't that cold. And um, Sitkins thought of their town as very safe. Residents worried more about encountering dangerous wildlife than people in the woods. So, you know, taking all that into consideration, it felt like a very safe, you know, walk. It was yeah. short, it was busy, yep. and the town is very safe. Unfortunately, Jessica did not make it home. Her parents were, they weren't really worried at first. They kind of figured she was just enjoying the celebration. She probably just lost track of time. However, as the night dragged on and morning appeared, they became fearful that something had happened to her. Her father contacted the police to file a missing persons report. They had no contact from her that whole day, 
She had no contact with any friends or family, so her father returned to Sitka PD later that evening to confirm that she still hadn't returned home and no one had heard from her. So Sitka PD mobilized the local search and rescue team. They focused their efforts in the wooded area of the Indian River. So between the campus of the college, Sheldon Jackson College and Sawmill Creek Road, so, you know, the, they were trying to search, find out what happened to her. Obviously, there was a river there as well. So, you know, they don't know, could there have been some sort of accident? Did she or, have fallen in Exactly. Um, her family are obviously distraught. And on May 6th, which was just two days after her disappearance, um, a shirt that was later identified as the green one that Jessica was wearing when she was last seen was located. So, you know... At this point, they are starting to think that something bad happened here. Sadly, just two hours after this discovery, the police made another grim discovery. They discovered Jessica Baggins' naked body buried in a wooded area about 20 metres from the bike path in a shallow grave beneath a fallen tree. An autopsy would reveal that she had been raped Dirt had been shoved into her mouth and it was impossible for them to tell if her cause of death had been strangulation as they had found broken bones in her neck consistent with strangulation or if she had choked on the dirt that had been shoved into her throat. Her eyes were blackened suggesting that she had been struck across the head or face so it was very violent, brutal. brutal. Her family along with the whole community were in a state of shock they were distraught and also the community felt very on edge so like i said before the sitkins felt like their town was very safe a crime of this magnitude was like unheard of and to sort of put that into context in 1993 the associated press wrote a national story about how mild and silly sort of the Sitka's police activity was using examples like residents played croquette too loudly and, you know, reporting suspicious $1 bills. Those were like reasons that people wronged the police. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So a stranger raping and murdering a teenager was so far out of the bounds of what happens there. Yeah. The community mourned Jessica together. More than 1,500 people, which was over a third of the town's population back then, gathered for a candlelight vigil on the bridge where her body was found. People stood for more than an hour. Even in the crowd, it was so silent that you could hear the birds, you know, calling from the trees. In the following days, with the killer at large, the town remained on edge. So, like... Every man sort of felt like a suspect. Every woman felt like a potential victim. Yeah. Jonathan actually said he recalls that very feeling, you know, like that nobody knew it was all sort of I and everyone was suspicious. Yeah, you'd be suspicious of everyone, especially that you said the only way in is by boat or plane. Yes. Yeah, so it's like... So, like, they're still there. It's someone that's there, really. The police were under intense pressure to find the killer and find out what happened to Jessica. Then, just nine days after her body was discovered, the killer walks into the police station in Sitka, confessing that he had killed Jessica Baggin. 
34-year-old Richard Bingham was a long-time resident of Sitka. He was a janitor of the Sheldon Jackson College. He lived on a fishing boat and he was a heavy drinker. He said he was having flashbacks of him committing a crime and throwing something into the local river before washing his hands clean. On May 15th, 1996, 10 days after the murder, Richard Bingham was arrested and charged with murder. He made a videotaped confession to the murder of Jessica Baggin. And that's it. That's it. Case solved. I know it's not. Or is it? (laughs) (laughs) Richard Bingham sat in a Juni jail nearby. He spent months in isolation because he needed protection from other prisoners. Then he was moved into the general population. Of the prison? Yes. His trial began in 1997, 13 months after the murder of Jessica. If convicted of the crime, he risked 129 years in jail. So the thing was that although people wanted this this case to be solved, they wanted a murderer behind bars, things just weren't adding up. So firstly, uh, remember I said he lived on a fishing boat? Yeah. That was searched. They found absolutely nothing linking him to the murder. Okay, it doesn't mean, you know, too much. Yeah. He also could not describe what clothing she had been wearing on the night, nor could he recall any sort of significant details about the crime, like the soil that was stuffed down her throat to kill her. He also said that he'd seen her walking across the campus in a black dress, which we know was not true because the last thing that she was wearing was a green blouse. Yeah. So accounts from the time also paint him as highly suggestible. His friends liked to tease him about inventing like crazy things he'd supposedly done during his drinking blackouts. He would feel terrible about it and try to make amends. So there was one story that I heard. He had been told by one of his friends that he'd stolen a salmon from a fish processor where he worked. So he shows up with a replacement fish and the manager's like, go home, like you haven't stolen a fish. Yeah, that, I don't find that. It's not friends. That's not funny. No, like. they're not very nice to him. And, you know, after the news of Jessica's death sort of overwhelmed the town, a drinking buddy suggested to him that he might have had something to do with the killing. And soon he was at the police station telling the officers that he was having disturbing dreams and flashbacks like could they help him? Oh, God. Now, the most damning thing of all, the DNA evidence did not match Richard. So there was blood found on the blouse that Jessica was wearing that did not match her or Richard. The semen from the sexual assault was not a DNA match. The foreign hair found on the victim's body was not Richard's, nor was a fingerprint found on a cigarette pack at the crime scene. So, like... So it's looking like he definitely didn't do it, or if he did do it, there was someone else there. Well, there was definitely someone else yeah. there, and I and it's looking like he doesn't even know anything about yeah. this this crime. And it's looking like his friends are assholes. Yeah, pretty much they are. So a psychologist testified that Richard was vulnerable to suggestion and had intellectual disabilities. The videotape of the confession. Um, was played to the jury 
And when they watched it, it was clear that he had been fed lines by the police. Like he kept looking up at officers to see what he was meant to be saying next. And he kept missing cues and having to start again. So there was also alibis. People had seen him out drinking on that night at the approximate time of the murder. So like, I mean, it just sort of had nothing to do with this Yeah, he didn't do it. One of the jurors, Mr. Frank Metcalf, told the Junie Empire at the time, (coughs) we felt he didn't do it. That means the guy who did it is still out there. And I think it's very, (laughs) Noble sounds very dramatic, but it is of the jury. They could have really taken the easy way out. But like this guy clearly had nothing to do with it. And, you know, that means that the perpetrator is still out there. Uh, his public defender remembers picking Richard up at the jail and driving him straight to the Juni airport. The destination on the plane ticket was Seattle. He said that they couldn't have sent him back to Sitka. He would have been hurt or killed. He remembers feeling like a walking target. When he was in jail, inmates were always trying to get him into the corners that video cameras couldn't capture. He said, God dang, that was the worst part of my life. Oh, I actually feel so sorry for him. So, like, he's obviously vulnerable. Yeah. His trial was also moved to to Junia because of the difficulty of finding an impartial jury in Sitka. And, you know, many people just assumed he was arrested, he was guilty. A lot of people probably wanted him to be guilty because they're like, it relieves them of the fact that there's someone someone else walking their town. Yeah, yeah. He remembers those first few hours of freedom vividly. He landed in Seattle early in the morning and hitchhiked all the way to Montana. He eventually found his way up to Bellingham, a college town not far from the Canadian border. And because there was work there, uh, he just never left. Um, He said that people sort of continued to eye him suspiciously and never really stopped believing that he was the person that killed Jessica Bagan. But like a lot of people, his defender felt like the scrutiny of Richard actually allowed for the real perpetrator to escape scot-free. And I feel like they did really focus on Richard. While the actual killer was just getting away with it. So after he was acquitted um, of the crime, potential suspects dwindled and then sort of completely dried up and the case just started to go cold. Uh, I find it so sad when that happens because it's like the hype, the media, Mm -hmm. it just Mm -hmm. subsides. And, you know, I'm sure her family just sort of felt like she was being forgotten about. That's it. And also, like, they're not looking for... Well, not really. So the family actually, they want to find out what happens here, obviously. So they hire their own private investigator to look into her case. More than 100 potential suspects were cleared through DNA comparison. And again, the trial went cold. And Jessica's murder remained unsolved. That is until, in September of 2018... The Cold Case Investigation Unit and Sitka PD discussed utilising a new forensic DNA procedure called genetic genealogy. So, like, the, the lieutenant, um, Mr. Dave Tugman, he said that every retired officer seems to have that one case that they can't let go that just kind of seems to haunt them, and this case was his. He said he walked into the captain's office with the file and told him that they had to t- retake on Jessica's case. So to kind of break down what genetic genealogy means, someone uploads their DNA to a website in order to determine their ancestry. So you know like those family tree websites? Yeah, like Ancestry.com. Yes. So this is able to identify biological relationships between individuals. 
Okay, so say I was to upload my DNA because mm-hmm. I wanted to find something in my mm-hmm. family tree. They could like scan all those DNA websites, so they and link can, my DNA yes. to like and my great uncle who might have been accused of killing someone. So they can link your DNA and you know determine the relationship there. Right. So they can they can put your DNA into a database and find that out. It's amazing. So an individual uploaded their DNA unbeknownst to them that they were relation of the DNA found in Rachel Baggins' crime scene in 1996. It was uploaded to a national database and in 2019, and a 23-year-old case looked like it was about to be solved. The DNA led police to Steve Allen Branch. Who so, is this guy? Yes. Investigators established that Steve Branch, now 67 years old, was a local mechanic that had lived in Sitka at the time of Jessica's murder. The cold case unit also learned that in March of 1996, only a couple of weeks prior to Jessica's murder, the Sitka PD had investigated him for sexually assaulting another teenage girl. So in March, which was just two months before she was murdered, um, a worker at Seamart, a local grocery, found a teenage co-worker crying in the break room. When the co-worker asked her what was wrong, the girl who was 18 at the time said that Steve Branch had raped her. After the rape was reported to the Sitka PD in mid-March, officers asked the teenager to get him to confess on a recorded call. So he did not admit to anything. Uh, He he was 44 at that time. He was not arrested for the alleged rape until June, which was more than a month after Jessica had been murdered and Uh, after Richard was already in jail. This is such a safe town. Nothing happens here. He's being accused of rape and they did... Why didn't and they, they didn't look into him. No. Especially when they're like, nothing happens here. I know, clearly something bad, something bad does happen. In 1997, Steve Allen Branch took the stand and cried, talking about the mistake he'd made, but maintaining that the encounter was consensual. A jury took only a few hours to acquit him. And, and I find this so funny, well, not funny, but I just I don't understand. How is he taking the stand and crying, saying that he'd made a mistake, but then on the other hand also saying it was consensual? Was he married at the time? No, he was not married at this time. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, it doesn't make sense. No, you can't make this terrible mistake, but then say, oh, you know, it was consensual, yeah. she wanted it too, like, it doesn't make sense. He lived in Sitka for nearly 15 years after the murder. In 2010, he and family members moved to the small town of Austin, Arkansas. And it, like, it does just make you wonder how someone that was, you know, arrested for rape. Like a few weeks prior. Exactly. How he wasn't even looked at or, yeah. or considered a suspect. And one of the worst parts is they actually had his blood because he was tested for HIV after the rape. And... They had his DNA. They could have compared it to the blood found on Jessica's shirt when oh she died. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And something that's interesting is one of the lead detectives on the uh, Sitka Police Department, Nick Ward, public records show that he's now married to one of Steve Branch's sisters, which is interesting. Okay, so one of the lead detectives on the case. On the case. 
is at the time, at the who time. was on the case, is now married. Maybe to one of Steve Allen's sisters. Is married to the killer's sisters. Yeah. And he had no idea. Well, you know, not saying that he did or didn't, but it's just interesting. Obviously, when the um, police attained this information, investigators from the Alaska Bureau of Investigation flew to Arkansas to interview Steve Branch at his home. So he was married at the time. Um, and he did also have children. There's very little information about his family, you know, that I, that I could find. And um, they questioned him with regards Jessica Baggins' murder, to which he thoroughly denies any knowledge or involvement. So they ask him to provide a voluntary DNA sample, to which he also denies. So they're like, okay, we will go and we will be back with a warrant. They leave. And approximately 30 minutes later, he shot himself with a shotgun. Oh, my God. I know. Even though he refused to provide a sample of his own DNA, of his own violation, investigators continued to seek a warrant for a sample. The DNA sample from his corpse matched with the DNA taken from the crime scene. So it was him all along? It was him all along. His obituary said that he enjoyed fishing and hunting and outdoor sports. Um, he is survived by his wife, Barbara, his two children, Justin and Brittany, and his grandchildren. Um, I don't think his wife ever really um, commented on any stories or anything like that there. There's very little information out there. And he will never... I just find his, he enjoyed fishing, hunting, outdoor sports. Like, What? He doesn't deserve that even on anything. Mm -hmm. Like he's never ever going to face a jury of his peers in this case. But I think that the only sort of positive to come out of this whole thing is that Jessica's family can now finally get some sort of element of closure knowing that the person who took their daughter's life in such a violent and cruel way can no longer hurt anyone. Okay, everyone, uh, we really hope that you enjoyed this episode of What's Crime with Gronya and Gemma. Um, please don't forget to uh, like and subscribe if you haven't already, and we will see you all again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs> Enthusiastic. <laughs>